podcast. John, it's a pleasure to have you in the studio today. Thank you for allowing me to be on my own podcast. That's going to air on my website. I thought it's my podcast now, because we're switching roles, so I'm the host, right? It's my podcast. My podcast. Okay, anyways. Welcome, welcome to the Jordan Siskin Show. I am here with uh, producer, singer, songwriter, and drummer John Sheckler. You know, you gave me so much shit at the beginning of the last one for not doing it correctly. I think I just did it very well. Welcome to People You Should Know. Oh, that's what it's called? That's what it's called. Oh. Welcome to People You Should Know, the Jordan Ziskin Show, with John Sheckler as our guest today in studio. We are live from a bar in Brooklyn right now. Called The Keep. And uh, we're going to be asking John some questions. John, I, I hear you have a couple of projects in the works right now. Uh, You're the most unnatural <laughs> host I've ever heard. <laughs> so uh, tell me what you've been working on so, lately. So who is a Sheckler? <laughs> John Sheckler. What is the essence? If you were to describe yourself, if you were any cereal, what would you be? <laughs> would you be total? Would you be life? If you were a tree. I'd be a sycamore. Next question. <laughs> Anyways, so Johnny Sheck, why don't you tell us about the projects you got going on right now? Alright. Well, I have a lot going on between producing your record and making my own trio record. I'm also doing the Linden Street Connection EP. This August, I'm going to be producing a friend of ours, uh, Monquez Pippins debut record. Say that name one more time. Monquez Q. Everybody Monquez calls him Q. Monquez Pippin. Right? Monquez Pippin. You met him. I did. Yeah, he, when we lived in the basement, he was, uh, he came over and like, you guys hung out playing oh. piano and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah so he's oh, coming cool in August to do his record. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I might actually be doing something else with this project I started with uh, Aaron Caceres and Sean Britt. I'm calling oh, you're it. You're gonna get involved in that. Yeah, I'm calling uh-huh. it uh, the Expatriates because every because people that's like a term for people who live in a country but don't aren't citizens of that country. They kind of got expatriated out from their other one. Is that their situation? Well, no. We all live in New York. None oh. of us are from New York. So, oh, okay. Expatriates. So okay. we might we might be going into the studio doing some weird, funky, free composing shit. Wow. It's pretty it's pretty out there a little bit. But. So we, we got about I think we have five projects to discuss. So uh, let's start first before we get into um, any of the particular projects, talk a little bit about your background. So you are a drummer first, correct? True. When did you start playing the drums? <laughs> and a student you don't want to know where I'm from or I'd like to know, I don't, I don't care where you're from, I'd like to know when you started playing the drums. I was like 10. You were 10? Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, my older brother had started playing like snare drum and stuff like that uh, for his elementary school. Okay. And uh, I just kind of carried that on for a while. Were you, did you take lessons? Were you classically trained? No, I didn't take any lessons regularly until college. Oh, okay. So I, I was pretty much self-taught. Wow. Just by listening to listening to records and watching videos. Who were your early influences when you were when you were playing in the beginning? Um, I don't know, because I had a weird way of coming into it. Like I, most people start with like pop tunes and go from there. Like they usually they kind of go backwards in time. Whereas I went from like the first piece of music I really started getting into was like. 
like early Duke Ellington. So like, you were always a jazz guy. I was pretty much always a jazz guy. Like my dad always listened to Beatles stuff, and I've always loved the Beatles and the Eagles and stuff like that. Yeah. But I didn't. When I was really starting to get interested in music, it was Duke Ellington. Which what, is a weird thing to say. Yeah, I was going to say, how were you first exposed to that, considering you were listening to the Beatles and the Eagles? Yeah. Where did, where did, when did Duke come into the picture? Okay, so the way it started on drums is by playing along with like the Beatles anthology records when those came out. Okay. Which is like all the live and, and uncut uh, studio tapes of them, like just screwing up and then playing and they can't hear themselves. So it wasn't exactly the greatest thing to play along to, but... Uh, when I tried out for the jazz band in my middle school, I didn't get it when I was in sixth grade, and that I got in the afternoon band, and one of the tunes was It Don't Mean Anything If It Ain't Got That Swing in this like middle school arrangement. And I just was enamored with it. So I spent all that summer trying to figure out who these people were right. that did that. And so that entire summer, I was listening to Duke Ellington and just getting deeper and deeper and deeper into it. To the point where I was reading all the liner notes. Like, it was around the time they really started doing box sets. So I would come home from the library with, like, a stack of 25 CDs. I, I occurred, incurred a lot of late fees. <laughs> wow. Like I didn't know this. I think I still owe the Bellevue Public Library, like, $120. <laughs> I won't tell if you won't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's my interview voice, no? Yeah. Your interview voice is fantastic. <laughs> playing so, a character here, right? So, um, yeah, so my early influences are like Ellington and all of Ellington's drummers, like Sam Woodyard and Sonny Greer, Rufus Jones, like some, like yeah, no, even now for a lot of guys. The guy's coming home right now. Those guys are still kind of obscure to some people. Like, people might know, like, jazz guys know, like, Sam Woodyard and Sonny Greer. Not a lot of people are, like, into Rufus Jones. I mean, like, that's... I got really deep into Ellington where I knew his entire band for long periods of time. So it wasn't just, like, the drum grooves. It it was was just the, the style as a whole. No, actually, I probably... I don't think I ever wanted to be like just a drummer Mm -hmm. Um, because I even when I was really young I think my the thing that I really liked about music was having the ability to like set the framework for something like I always wanted would have rather been a songwriter than a guitar player Mm -hmm. um, or than a piano player like I would have always rather have been the guy leading the band rather than just a band member so, you know, I, yeah, because of that, that's why I was really attracted to Ellington. I mean, that's an interesting, you know, observation about yourself, though, because the general view of a drummer is not someone who leads the band, typically. Yeah. It is more thought of just the person keeping the beat. Um, drummers kind of get a bad rap. I mean. Yeah, they do. And, and it's really because, like, they don't speak the same language as everyone else. Mm-hmm. Especially in, in the old days when... Like, those guys had no... There were no college ensembles or even high school ensembles. You know, those guys didn't learn basic music theory. So if you said, we're going to start at where that B-flat 7 is, uh, most drummers would have no idea what that is until much later in their careers. So when you got to school, did you know that you were going to pursue music immediately? No. You didn't? No, 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 no. I... 
basically thought about doing a lot of other things. Like, there was a point in time where I really wanted to be a writer. Really? Yeah. Like, all kinds of writers. Like, especially when I was, like, 14, 15. Like fiction? Fiction, Novel? yeah. I don't I don't think I had I have the uh, patience to be a historical writer. <laughs> I, I was just... I'm, I'm reading another Robert Carroll book, mm-hmm. and I was reading that he said he's going to finish his Lyndon Johnson biographies... And it could be anywhere from two to ten years. Jesus Christ. And his last one was published in 2002. So the man might be dead and never finish the last volume of his work. I don't have that kind of patience. What's he writing about every day? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I gave you that book. It's, it's some thick. thick reads, yeah. That is true. But, like, so, uh, yeah, I, like, I wanted to write short stories. I was really into screenwriting for a long time. Like, I used to buy scripts. Not buy scripts. I would get scripts from the library. Yeah. So, like, you'd read, uh, what was one of them? One of them was Miller's Crossing, the Coen Brother movie. So I was really into that stuff for a long time. I thought I was going to do that. Is there but, any parallels between your interest in that and what you're doing now? Probably just the control yeah. aspect of it. You know, like, I I never wanted to... That's all good. I never wanted to be, like, the star, necessarily. Which is weird to say, because the band leader is kind of the star. Right. But, like, I didn't want to be... I would much rather have been the composer than the guy in the band that gets all the solos. It's interesting. I feel the same, even as a front man. I never liked it. But there is something. I've always, at least in TV shows, I've always admired the people who wrote the TV show as opposed to the actors who were acting in it. Because frankly, those people were just reading lines. Exactly. The real creative geniuses are the one behind the scenes. Yeah, Christoph Waltz says that, like, acting's a skill. Right. That's all it is. It's just a skill. The actual artistry is in in writing and stuff like that. I feel the same way about playing music as opposed to writing it. Mm Mm-hmm. Because uh, was something I discovered in college is that if you write something, and if you write it well enough, yeah. it doesn't matter who plays it. I'm right. definitely learning that now. I play with so many different piano players now. Right. All my tunes still sound like my tunes. Because that framework is so strong that they can't really mess it up. That's... You know, screenwriting is not like that. That's probably why I dropped it. I also wasn't very good at it. That's probably another right. reason. So how long before you went from your screenwriting, uh, flirting with writing, yeah. into, into music as a major? The It was when I... It, see, this is really funny because I probably should have picked up on it a lot earlier than I did that I should do music. Mm-hmm. But it took until I went... I was selected for All-State Jazz Band. Think about that. Like, I had to be selected as the drummer in the state of Washington. So, to do it, and it. Were, what, you, were you drafted? I mean, was it like? <laughs> were they yeah, like? Yeah, I we signed need a up. Yeah. The other years, they're like, "You're four F. Get the fuck out of here." Yeah, right. No, no, like you just you audition and you get it. Yeah. Um, but what? what but really, you weren't you weren't majoring at the time in music when this happened. No, I was seven, I was sixteen. Oh, okay. Oh, this yeah, I was a junior. No, 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 no. This oh, is this fine. is still in high school. Okay. Right. But what happened is that uh, it was my first time being around musicians that were either as good or better than I was, who all were kind of in the same boat. Where I could talk to them about the things that I was into, and they would like reciprocate conversation. You know, that was the first time I ever experienced that. 
I was also playing baseball at the time, and I don't, I don't have that competitive instinct. Yeah. You know, like I never cried because I lost. I was just having a great time. So, like contrasting that group of people with the group of people at Allstate, it was just like, well, why was I trying to do other things? Right. And af- after that, I decided to do college, uh, get a go as a music major. Oh, so you, so you went into school as a music major? Yeah, no, no, no. In college, I was okay. I was a music major. Yeah, okay. But I I didn't take music seriously. Like a lot of my friends took lessons when they were like 10, 11 right. when they started, and I didn't take that stuff seriously until I was like seventeen, like right before college auditions. Basically. So one thing I'm very curious to know about you is, you know, for those of you who are listening who don't know, John produced my solo record. And what was really interesting, just in terms of our relationship, is that, you know, you you were the drummer in my band, The Liaisons, and I ended up putting together this solo, this solo project that was mostly me on acoustic guitar. It was very different. And you, out of nowhere, hired four musicians to play behind me, gave them all, basically wrote up the charts on my songs, and... For the first time as I'm playing a show, we didn't get a chance to practice, I'm hearing this arrangement that you put behind my songs, and that was the first time I discovered, wow, this guy's not just a drummer. There, there is a lot more to him, and it's not, you know, not a sign of disrespect at all. Yeah. I just didn't know that this even existed. So I guess my question would be, when did you know, and, and what in college allowed you to um, build those skills more than just being a drummer? Did you learn music theory? Did you learn about other instruments? What was yeah. it that kind of gave you that scope to be able to see the whole picture? Well, I think I think the really big thing for me was that I I wanted I had because I had always wanted to be a composer, I kind of started learning that stuff anyways. Um, which I mean it's all really funny because like Tech, like I really should say that like producing a pop record and writing a big band chart are very similar mm-hmm. but I can't write big band charts I'm very bad at writing big band charts because there's so many mechanics that work with the right. instruments I just I've never really gotten that so you're not gonna be like the next Danny Elfman no <laughs> actually I was I was talking to Aaron about this the other day classical stuff is beyond me. I, I've listened to a lot of classical music. Those and I guys just, are on a level that's beyond what the mo- what most of us sort of pop back. Yeah, but like There's even no. even just the the chords that they play, like they're not playing these crazy. Because like if you see my charts and you see like A flat sharp eleven flat nine add flat thirteen, like shit like that is really complex dense chords. Most classical composers are working with basic chords, chord structures. Like, all my favorite classical pieces are really simple. I just don't know how they do it. Like, how they can just sit at a piano and play a three-note chord, and it just totally makes sense to them. I feel like a lot of classical stuff that I've played has been very complex and all over the place. I mean, especially when you look at like these, you know, three-part songs that uh, that well, go yeah. all over the place. I mean, to me, and class, you know, classical music has always been. Yeah. I, I like classical music, but it's always it's always felt like a level above. Yeah, um, it's some of those guys are. There's a a guy named Martin. 
Did you ever want? Did you ever want to do something like movie scoring or anything like that, or applying music to? I would. I would give myself challenges in college. Yeah. Like, um, the more I got into writing, the more I would just challenge myself. Like, I have nothing to do this weekend. Let me try to write right. a score to a movie. And, and that's how you get good. I mean, really, that's what. It, it's just yeah. that, you know, yeah. putting those challenges and just trying to get better. Yeah. And I also like. I would do weird experiments. Like, I'm gonna try to write a screen. Uh, string quartet this weekend uh, without a plan. So I would like I would just write these notes that would kind of sound good. Like this is what's really, I used to write these things on finale, like on a notation sheet, not at a piano. So I would just write notes that sounded good, nice little melodies and then I would write the second part to that. Like it got really weird. I had some cool shit, but yeah. I I lost it all in college, right. unfortunately. So let's fast forward just a little bit. So you graduate college with a music degree, um, and talk me through the timeline after graduation. How long before you start playing on ships? It was about four months, but I was ready to do it before I graduated. Yeah. Um, because my my dad's also very old school. He's I'm not sure he would have taken the I'm gonna take a couple months and hang out possibly a year right. in Seattle and just kinda of hang out and see what happens. So it was that pressure of like if I'm gonna like, do this I need to make some money doing it. Well and it was also one of those things where like I know it's gonna make my parents feel better if I have something lined up with this thing. Cause they were always trying to like get me to do some business stuff. Right. And uh, like even toward the end, like I took a music business class, which was worthless, just because they were like, maybe you should take a business course. Yeah. That thing didn't even talk about. Like, <laughs> here's how you file right. to become an LLC. Yeah, that's pretty for much your music. Yeah, like it, yeah. N- none of the stuff that I'm actually. This is how doing you get now. signed by a label in 1982. Yeah, and because like everything's changing now. Here's how you plan a tour for Beyonce. Right. First, you have to contact the stadium and figure out if your sponsors are going to do it. Oh, thank like, you. Like, yeah. <laughs> oh man, Dave, thanks. It's so easy for me. When I go on my stadium tour, I'm totally using all this oh, information. But yeah, I thought I thought that it would be good, and also I had heard that even though they were rough, they were good because you're you're playing every night. Yeah, and that's how you get so you were way doing, better. you were doing cover gigs every single night, right? On the, on the ship, kind of like sometimes it was cover gigs, sometimes I would do shows, but they were they were review shows. Would you so. ever get to do any of your own material, or was it always just whatever? I, I did one night of my own yeah. stuff. Um, you know, one of the things that like happens on ships is like you're especially like because northern colorado the place i went to is a, is a good music school there's not a lot of bad musicians there so when i left and went on ships i discovered there's a lot of bad musicians yeah. that just get gigs somehow i discovered the same thing when i went to nashville but that's another story. yeah like there's a ton <laughs> of them so right. i kind of looked and i was like there were times when I would flirt with it, and I did get to do it once when we had a decent piano player, yeah. but it was just not gonna happen. So it was mostly just grinding. It was just practicing out these sets that they gave you. And did, did you did you feel like you got a lot better from the time you got on the ship to when you finally left? Oh yeah, it's it's working out every day. Like you ever, if you work out every day, you're eventually gonna lift. Do you ever have nerves pounds. on stage? I haven't in a long time. I because I'm curious yeah. if. Forcing you to be in front of people every single night for however many months. How long were you on the ships for? 
I was on on and off for about two and a half years. Yeah, so for two and a half years, nearly every single night, going in front of people. Yeah, the the only time I what's funny is the last time I got like nervous, nervous on stage was when I taught my old high school second jazz band. Oh, because it's and, like back, homecoming. Yeah, and I remember the one performance I directed them in, like my hands were shaking. Wow. Because it's a totally different vibe being in front as a teacher. Right. And I'm counting off, and like my hands are really like trembling. So I'm you want to be the center of attention, but maybe you don't want to be the center of attention. It's, it's, it's that tricky it's, yeah, balance. Yeah, it's weird. And yeah, also it's not. weird, like, you know, I was also really young when I did that, but... Yeah, no, my my fear of the stage has pretty much gone away. Right. You know, and and like it shows. At, you have a lot of fun up there. Yeah, because it's well that that also came from being in New York and like kind of looking around and be like, oh, well, not everyone's killing. Right. So why do I care if I don't sound good? Because <laughs> that guy sounded terrible. Yeah. You know? We all have these mental gymnastics we put ourselves through to, yeah. to be able to perform, and that's definitely a good outlook to have. Yeah. Because so, if that guy's bad and yeah. he's got this gig, then I'm, I could sound terrible from my point of view and still be fine. Yeah. You know? So not to get all gooey and romantic, but I think it is important that we do talk about on these boats yeah. you met your wife, your future wife. Yeah. And... Uh, the well, current lead singer of, I, I say current as if she's going to be replaced, the lead singer of Linda Street Connection. And co-writer. And co-writer, and co-leader. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, yeah, we met during that time. It's like the only good thing that came out of those ships. Yeah. Like, I can't, I can't ever say that they were bad because of that. Right, and you guys were performing together in the same bit. She was a singer and you were a drummer, correct? Yeah, I was, um, when she started out, she was a show singer. Mm-hmm. Which means she was in the review shows that we would do. Yeah. She she was a singer dancer, which is really funny. Was she funny. like lead or was it more of just like a, a part of an ensemble? It, it was an ensemble on okay. stage. Uh, it was more like a Broadway thing, but you know, ships. Right. Not Broadway. Yeah, of course. Um, and then she, her next couple, her next contract, she switched to a band singer. So she was always, you know. Like, we were apart for a little bit, but she and I have been singing in bands, playing in bands for a long time together. Now, the romantic aspect of your guys' relationship aside, did you always know from the beginning, this is someone I want to work with musically and creatively? No. No. Honestly, no. When did that come together? It started to come together when, well, because when Kayla and I first met, she's not, she was not in the pop world. Like, she was Broadway. All the way. Oh, so she she wasn't yeah. even interested in like being in a band necessarily. Not really, um, because she like before she got on ships, she was actually auditioning for like Broadway shows and stuff like that. And um, you know, it, I actually introduced her to a lot of the stuff that she loves, like um, not all the New Orleans stuff. She yeah. went and dug that herself, but she's really into like old school R and B. And the reason she's into that is because I have the complete collection of Stax Volt singles right. and this collection of uh, 70s Soul Experience. And it's all like the baddest shit from the 70s. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, it toward the end when we were thinking about leaving, like, we kind of thought we need to do something. Like, I don't think the thought of doing an original project came until way afterwards. Yeah. So, so you guys are, are dating and you're and you're married not long after you get off the ships. Um, tell me about moving to New York 
and you know, I know at the time when when you started playing drums in my band, you were playing in about four other bands. What was it like to now move to New York as a musician with your soon-to-be wife, and to decide we're gonna we're gonna be musicians in New York? Take me through what that was like. So, we I actually tried a different route before, like in in the middle of contracts two and three mm-hmm. on ships. I went and did a grad school auditions. I auditioned for Purchase College up in uh, Purchase. Yeah. I auditioned for Rutgers and then uh, DePaul in Chicago. And I didn't get into any of them, obviously, because I don't have a master's degree. Right. Kind of thank God, but it's a whole different thing. <laughs> I think it's bag. probably a waste of time more than anything. Yeah. I have a couple and, buddies who got master's in music, and it's like. Well, like, I don't know how far that gets it, you. It, it's really great if you want to teach college and eventually get a doctorate yeah, or something that like that. Be, yeah. But I'm like I don't want to disparage too much because I really enjoyed Northern Colorado. Like I had I got really fortunate. Jim White's an amazing teacher, making sure that I say that. And like the faculty's really good, but like college has kind of diluted the water a little bit. Like because they don't make bad musicians like no one who comes out of college with a jazz degree is going to be bad or like terrible there's just there's a lot of just fine guys out there and the problem is that those just fine guys are trying to do the same like they're all trying to do the same thing just fine doesn't get you anywhere yeah it doesn't and even just being good doesn't get you anywhere you have to be interesting and you have to like be able to bring people into what you're doing so colleges don't really teach that. That's why every every time the thought creeps in my head, maybe you should go to grad school. Yeah. You know, I heard that Queens College is really cheap. You can go there. Like, I just think, yeah, but would this it's really help academic, you in any yeah. significant way? I mean, that's, if you're if you want to go into academia, I think it'd make a lot of sense. But otherwise, yeah. I don't know necessarily where the path is there. Yeah. Um, well, also musically, like it doesn't make sense because one of the things that's made me stronger as a as a writer and a drummer is that I'm always playing for audiences. Right. And I, I was talking to Aaron about this in a different way, about how some stages can lead to a vibe. Like, if the stage is too high above the audience, they kind of have this weird reverence. Like, I can't remember what stage we were talking about, but I was telling them all my favorite stages, the audience is either eye level when they're sitting down or they're slightly above you. Like Bowery Electric, everyone's looking down. So you have to please those people or you can see them. And you can see them not like you. So I'm, I'm the I, opposite personally, but yeah. keep going, yeah. Well, yeah, I just, I feel like, I guess it's a really big thing in, in jazz because a lot of, because jazz is so contained in academia right now yeah. that like you're just playing for musicians. So you right. just write stuff that's like cool, but it's not listenable. I do like a stage that's a little bit above. I think it it sets a platform of, of you know, this is something important, this is something that needs to yeah. be paid attention to. Um, I do, I mean, but then there are also those gigs where, like, you can reach out and touch the audience, and that, yeah. that's great as well. So, after, so, let, let's get back Wait, to, to the timeline here. Yeah. You, so you decide not to go to grad school, yeah. and then you're in New York. Okay, well, I didn't decide. I didn't get into grad school. Oh, you didn't get off. Oh, I didn't yeah. get into any of them. Uh, even though I was, I was like one spot away. Wow. Like if there had been one more spot open, I probably would have gone to grad school, and I'm not sure if that would have been the best. Thing I, who to do. knows if that would have been the best thing for you? Like yeah, exactly. You, you would have been getting out when, like two years ago or something. Uh, I would have. Well, I would have graduated in like 2015. 
but I don't know if that would have really right. I don't know if it would have helped me as much as like Just not fine. graduating yeah. so we decided then like afterwards like we're gonna do we're gonna finish this contract and we're gonna do one more and we're done and after that we gotta make a decision what we're doing and we didn't want to move like the consensus was we're gonna move to New York because there's nothing else we actually want to do because like I had like jazz musician gotta come to New York period I don't care where you're doing your thing. You gotta live in New York for a while. Was Caitlin still excited about doing Broadway and maybe thought that? By that time, she had turned into just doing anything that makes money doing music. Right. And so yeah, like our last contract was set. Like we were gonna move to New York. Period. So we like didn't like we were in a cool spot. We were in Australia. Like we could have spent all kinds of money and we didn't do shit for six months. We didn't do anything. We didn't do anything cool. All we did is we went and got a weird... Like <laughs> yeah, like, we went and got, like, weird Australian burgers in Sydney, and that was it. That was our splurge. It's really expensive, weird. Yeah. They don't have bacon. They have ham that's grilled. That's grilled bacon to them. Australian burgers? With pineapple. Gross. Yeah. They're weird people. Yeah. But, um... Yeah, when we got off, we actually got really lucky in that someone we knew was about to sublet his apartment anyways. So he said that he was going to sublet, and we decided, well, we're just going to do it. We moved. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, just but, to take a big leap like that. Yeah, and I mean, the month before, like, I had a, I had auditioned for a couple bands, including you. Well, I didn't audition for you. I met you. You pretty much got in. Yeah. <laughs> you had an audition, but it was like, and oh, I was, wow, this guy's connected. And I was play. also doing something for uh, Marshall White and the Regiment, which unfortunately that band's defunct now. Yeah. You, you were playing for, who else? Two Thirds Goat? Right? Two Thirds Goat. And uh, later I started working with this blues band in Long Island that's yeah. also defunct. But like, when I moved to New York, I had to go back out to Seattle almost immediately. Like, I only spent a week out here in our apartment. Before I had to fly out to Seattle and like release, I put that in quotation marks, release my first record, uh, which the label like buried because they didn't do any work. All right, so hold on, we yeah. have a lot of questions. Just oh, about, please, we got to go into the timeline of that. So, when were you? When did you start working on this record? And and when did you get signed to that label? When when did all this happen? So. After my first contract, I definitely wanted to do something. Yeah. I had what I thought was a lot of money then, and it's not. I was like, I have $4,500. I'm going to spend it. That was a poor, poor idea. Right. So, you know, I I wanted to do the label thing because I was afraid of self-releasing. Because I'm, we're going to self-release probably in October and November, and, like, it's, it's a lot of work. Right. But I also didn't have like the ideas and the wherewithal to do what I'm doing now. So how did you come into contact with this label that you ended up working with? I was I was shotgun emailing yeah. labels at the time, like small labels that like could at least help. And these guys emailed me back, said we're really interested to work with you. And I think part of it was the fact that I ended up going back on ships. I wasn't planning to go back on right. ships. I just ended up having to. And when that happened, I mean, I just, I was, I was out of, out of sight, out of mind. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, looking back, I made a lot of mistakes. A lot of mistakes. Like, 
they're just having volume control issues. So like mis- mistake number one was I let them record it in a studio. Now when, when we when I recorded this record, I did mean? I did it in a studio, but Mike's studio is not the same because it can all it's basically a, a room. So what was the problem of recording in their studio? I hate ISO booths. Oh. Like, be, being a drummer and getting in an ISO booth, I might as well not be playing with people. Right. So I didn't want to do that. And they said, oh, yeah, but we have this really nice studio up in wherever. It was Snohomish County. Like, it was unincorporated parts of Washington is how far away this recording studio was. And it is. It's a nice studio. They have, like, a decent piano. Who are, who are the musicians who played with you on that record? Uh, this guy, Darius Wilrick, who's oddly some huge international star in Japan. Like, <laughs> but he's an R&B guy. He's not. He's not a jazz guy. That was the other thing. Is I did. Like all the things I did for this record, I didn't do for the last one. Like this one, I had a working band. Like Steve Aaron and I had been playing together, had been right. playing together for a long time before. So we you had to make all these mistakes to figure out what to do. The next yeah, time. and also like there was always like I was getting sweet talked by the the guy who owns the label, you know, just like oh we really love this, we're really excited about this. Right. But the minute I left Seattle for any length of time, it was like like the record was supposed to come out in November, November you know while I was on the ship, so we could have a big coming back party for me. That's right. also a record release. Came November comes in, the, they're not even mixed. So I'm calling him during the summer, being like, you know, how's the mixing going? He's like, well, you know, I think we should probably do this in January. I'm like, okay, well, we'll do it in January. I'll come in, we'll mix it in December, and then in January, look, I already got, I already got Tula's Jazz Club, right. like the best club in Seattle. I already got that booked. We'll just do a big thing. January rolls around, nothing. Like that gig rolls around, nothing happened. Like their their whole deal was a bull handle press for you, and they didn't do anything. They didn't do anything. I mean, that's the trap yeah. that a lot of young musicians fall into—that they want to be represented. Yeah, by I mean, like the the thing still got me gigs. Right. Like it's still it doesn't sound bad. It sounds fine. It just sounds like a piano player that's never played my music before, right. and it's it's a young it's it's a young me record like the tunes are very much like what i wrote in college and i'm playing in the same manner that i did um but yeah so then going on another ship say all right well we'll do it in august august rolls around get the same gig get guys i love playing with nothing and then i moved to new york i said look i don't ever want to have to come back to seattle for this again I'm going to be there in May. We're going to do it in May. And like 25 people showed up to the record release because they, they didn't put in the time and effort. So, yeah, that's that was a huge learning experience. Yeah, I mean, I think everybody's first record in, in, yeah. for most, in most I cases. I think is. I told you that the best music degree education is to tell somebody, here's a $1,000, go make yeah, a record. Go make an awful and record. And just see what happens, Yeah, you know? No, I mean, we made all the mistakes in the book, but then, you know, when you come around for that second time... Everything I wanted, yeah. So, let's let's talk about... You're in New York, you're playing with about four or five bands, you're playing in my band. And I'd say you, you were mostly playing... You were playing with other bands, and then you were also doing the John Sheckler trio, which yeah. was um, a jazz composition. It was you on drums. It typically involved. Sometimes it was a quartet, but it typically involved. Yeah, a, I don't. A, I don't like playing with uh, 
with horn players that much. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm a weird... Well, I, one of the first yeah. shows I saw you in, it was a guitar player. Larry Corbin was your guitarist. Yeah. It was, I'm amazed uh, that you remember Larry. Yeah, it was Aaron on... Uh, oh. It wasn't Aaron? No, I didn't Aaron start didn't playing play Aaron until later. Um, it was uh, Marty Kenny. On gig, bass? Uh, my very first gig was Marty Kenny and Dan Ruffalo. Yeah. Playing with the rest of the rest of the room section. Yeah, and you would uh, it was a four, so it was a four piece with yeah. gu- electric guitar, upright bass, uh, piano, yeah. and then you on drums. Yeah, right. I moved away from that pretty quickly. You mostly, well, I you took out the electric guitar. I mean, it was it became a trio at that. Yeah. Point. Well, one of the reasons that I did that with Larry is because, um, when. When I first came to New York for my auditions, I went to Smalls, and Larry was one of the guitar players. He was, like, one of the five people I knew in the city. And he was, out of the five, he was one of the two musicians that actually worked. Him and Marty were the two guys I knew who worked in the city. So, yeah, I mean, Larry was the first guy that I played with. I did a couple other gigs with him. Um, but, yeah, I don't, I don't like playing with... Like, I love playing with piano players in trios, and I like playing with guitar players sometimes. It depends on, on my, on like, the vibe. Yeah. But I don't like playing with piano players and other people, because I think too many piano players get really busy behind somebody else, and then I'm no longer reacting to one person. Like, that's what I really like. I like it kinda playing... It kind of gets too many chefs in the kitchen sort of thing. Yeah, and then, like... Man, some cats are fucking vibey. <laughs> like a lot of guys I went to school with, man, were some very, cats are fucking vibey. Were like, what a I, jazz cat thing to say. It is like he. I I went to school with guys who were super vibey sometimes. If you played too much behind them, mm-hmm. when really like I'm trying to play with like two people here, yeah, and only one of them is giving me something worth playing with. You know, that's why I love working in piano trios and stuff like that because I can just focus on that guy mm-hmm. me and him hooking up it's it's a much easier roadmap to sounding good so while playing in your trio playing in multiple bands including my band liaisons what made you decide what when did you and Caitlin start the beginnings of what would be Linden Street Connection how did that come together and whose idea was it well it was it was around that time because it was 2015, I believe? Yeah, uh, 2015 was 14. our first gig, but we had been thinking about it for a while. Mm-hmm. Like, what was happening is when when I was in your band, Marshall White, Sunset Rebels, 0360, and Two Thirds Goat all at the same time, you all would have weekly rehearsals. So, oh, wow. like, Marshall would rehearse on Mondays, you would rehearse on Tuesdays, and because everybody had day gigs, and I was working at Guitar Center, so I kind of had, a, like, a midnight like a, a middle afternoon gig. The only time anybody could rehearse is at like 10 o'clock at night. Jesus. So, you know, I would work, go to Marshall's rehearsal on Monday. So you pretty much nonstop. You're, yeah, I mean, I was rehearsing three, four times a week Jesus and Christ. gigging. Different bands. Yeah, and maybe gigging like once a month with each one of those bands. Yeah. So I was, I was like rehearsing a lot and playing a lot, but I wasn't playing a lot. Yeah. And we just like... Man, being in that many bands and then doing some cover gigs, like you just want to shoot yourself sometimes because, you know, it was it was the band in Long Island that really did it because we would say, guys, why don't we play this? We could just play this; it'd be great. And they wouldn't want to because they had a really niche idea of what kind of band they wanted to be in. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, why don't we just do a band where 
we can control what we want to do. So that's that's where Linden Street Connection started. We just wanted some control. Right. How did you know if I were if I were going to describe Linden Street's connection, uh, Linden Street Connections uh, no, that was, that was style? Good. Linden Street's connection. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. If I was going to uh, describe your style, I would I would say it's somewhere somewhere between like New Orleans funk and and, and pop, and then you know Caitlin definitely brings a lot of like you yeah. know. Uh, Janis Joplin to to the vocals and it's it's tough to kind of peg you guys down but it, it, there's definitely all those influences there. Where did that style come from? Because you have Caitlin coming from Broadway, you have you coming from jazz. Where did how did the compromise of that create New Orleans? <laughs> I don't think it really. You know, I mean, I I was like I said, I was fortunate in studying with Jim because Jim's a studio guy in Nashville, so he knows and plays everything and his goal I think this is probably his goal is to have everybody be able to play everything well because he doesn't just want good jazz musicians he wants working guys um, so like he's the one who introduced me to a lot of old school R&B stuff he's the one who introduced me to, like Zeppelin and through me Caitlin got introduced to that stuff too so yeah. it's not it's not like you know, you weren't just like exclusively a jazz guy. You had these others. Yeah, influences. I mean, it's. It, I mean, that's obviously. That's. I still think that's my bread and butter. Yeah. Like, did if you, I'm gonna play a gig, right. I, I would want to do that. But, you know, it's. We've been listening to this stuff for a long time, and it was, like, if our first couple tunes are not like that at all. Mm. Like, even what about you's not like a bluesy tune because. Like, I was just starting to write on guitar again, and we were just writing whatever we could write. So that's why, like, the early tunes that were, like, the new stuff that we're going to write is a little more in the, like, funky, bluesy vein. So it was more about just trying to find the sound, really, and that's kind of where you landed on. Yeah, I think I think the first thing was just, we're just going to do good songs, period. We're just going to do good songs. So we didn't really care if it was like a genre thing, but the you know when it got to a point where like okay, Caitlin's not this kind of singer, right? Then we needed to change gears a little bit in writing. We also like when we got more experience writing, we were able to do that too. So, but yeah, it just the whole band came from I don't like we don't want to rehearse like this anymore. It's like if you notice the way our band works. We don't do any rehearsals. Right. Ever. Like, you might come over. That's about it. That's yeah. it. Like, we we said, like, we don't want to we don't want to be some of these bands. You weren't too bad at rehearsing, but, like, like Sunset Rebels and 0360, it was like you would go to rehearsal, and no one would have a clue what we were rehearsing. Right. You just play through tunes for an hour. Everybody sits and, like, is, you know, says stuff and talks and everybody throws their two cents in the band doesn't get any better do you find though that, that would sometimes inhibit the way you'd want a song right if you guys wanted to do something was it maybe a little bit more complex would the fact that you guys don't rehearse maybe disincentivize you from doing that I don't think so I think that because we also I mean we're, we're taking on like my method of writing which is uh, I'm, I'm definitely doing this now where I'll write a tune and then I'll bring it into the trio at some worthless gig that we play 
And are you talking about uh, jazz songs? You're playing about yeah, no, no, my, like songs. like my tunes. Oh. I'll bring them into like I did Silvana. Not that Silvana is totally worthless, but when you play at six o'clock, it's totally worthless. Right. So I brought a couple brand new tunes into that a couple days ago, and that way there's no pressure if that band screws up. Right. So they can sound not great on it, and I can figure out if the tune's any good. And we're taking that same approach to Linden Street songs now. We're like, we have a couple that are almost ready, but we want to take a gig that we don't have to care about. And then try to figure out what that tune is, maybe get a recording of it, and then give it to guys. I mean, we're, we're, we try to make it as easy as possible for people to sound good on the gig. So if they need to play a specific part, you know, maybe that's something that we'll work on. We might have to do a rehearsal with it. We try really hard to, like, right. if we want a specific part played, we'll write it out. I mean, we got guys we got guys who can sight read. So we'll put it on a page and see what they can do with it. So Walk me through the songwriting process. What was it like writing songs with your spouse? I mean, that is, it's a little bit um, unconventional. I don't know. Do you know many? I mean, there are the family bands. I suppose the Osmonds. Did it. I don't yeah. know if Sharon had any uh, fingers in uh, Ozzy's songwriting. I doubt it, but um, fingers well, in something, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, Sharon. Uh. <laughs> oh, well, see. <laughs> but anyway, uh, as far as writing with Caitlin, I don't know because it, it's changing. So it's it's not the same that it was when we first started. Because when we first started, it was like, here's a tune. Mm-hmm. So who would come up with the tune first? You're saying yeah, I, I would, I would usually yeah, I would usually come up with Caitlin, the riff. Caitlin doesn't play instruments. No, but she? she's she's starting. Like she's no. starting to learn guitar right. just in case like you can't make a gig and you don't want to be screwed and I don't want to play <laughs> guitar. So that'd be cool, Caitlin. Yeah. So like she's starting to learn that and she has a good idea of what she wants when she really wants to write a song. So like a new tune that we wrote called Clearly is her harmony. Like, she really wanted the harmony part, and then I built off what the original idea was. But the first batch was, I have this guitar riff, yeah. and I have this, like, skeletal... So you always started on acoustic guitar? Yeah. Okay. And then I have this, uh, I would usually have, like, either full lyrics that I wrote, or skeleton lyrics. Like, I have, like, a verse and a chorus. So you're you're mostly the songwriter, but you're the lyricist and the... No. Well, that well, was only Caitlin? for the first one. The oh, only just for the one, first one. Yeah, the okay. only one where I think I wrote all of it is One More Day. I yeah. think that's all me. But the other time, I would give these things to Caitlin, and Caitlin would, like, basically make it her own and then write the next verses. So if I only had a verse and a chorus, she would write everything else and then she would edit the verse that I wrote. So she's kind of feeling like she can branch out now that, you know, once you start kind of putting the shell of the skeleton of the song together. Yeah, and now it's becoming more of like I have this riff and I kind of have this melody idea and Caitlin will write the lyrics. Yeah. Like she did that with People Song. And then she, you know, if I if it's getting too repetitive, she might direct me to like there should be something here, there should be a bridge here. Right. Or I might I might also do the same thing. So but um yeah, I mean, right now she's like definitely the lyricist of these last three or four tunes. Oh, she's been kind of taking the yeah. reins and lyrics. How do you think she's been doing in terms of lyrics? I think, I think you're putting me in a position. <laughs> no, I think she's a good lyricist. I haven't heard those, so I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I think she's a good lyricist. I mean, we 
we obviously have like artistic quarrels. But like there's there's been times so did like John and Paul. I mean, yeah, when we did when we wrote Maybe I Do, we wrote it from like I came in with a set of lyrics and she wrote it from a different perspective. Yeah. So like her ideas maybe I do is like I hate this person, but maybe I don't. My perspective was like a relationship where you slowly realize that that is the dumbest person on the face of the planet. I came in from a much more like right. funny perspective. I mean, but that's like um, uh, what's it called? Uh, life is very short, but there's more time. Paul McCartney, John Lennon, right? Yeah. And also, I always write like turns of phrases. That's the only thing that I start writing lyrics on. Right. You know, and she'll actually make them make sense. Yeah, like the only song that wasn't like that was One More Day. That's probably the only song that will stay that type of songwriting. Like, I don't think I'll write a full lyric ever again. So you guys going into uh, the recording of the EPs, you know, you had your solo EP, and I do want to talk about that. We'll get to that a little bit later, but I want to focus on Linda now. You guys have been playing for about, I'd say, maybe, what, two years when you decided to go in for an EP? And yep. kind of coming after me in the studio, you had worked as my producer, and you saw what I was doing in there, and decided you like the studio. Um, you only recorded four songs for the EP. Um, you had, I believe, about seven written at the time? I think, right now, I think we have six that we play in the show. Yeah. We have, we have the four, and then we have People Song and yeah. uh, so Stop Moving. What, what made you decide to do the songs there? Are, I believe, One More Day, Maybe I Do. Uh, what, what About You and Fall Down Soon. Fall Down Soon, yeah. It was because we didn't... We didn't want to make a full-fledged album to start out with. I mean, I don't know, because if we were going to make a full album, we would definitely have spent a lot more time and a lot more money on it. Uh, we didn't really have the time to put into it at the time because we both had day jobs at the time. Yeah. And we didn't really want to put that much money into it yet. So we wanted to get these four tracks. Basically, it's basically the sound of the band. With the only exception is that on Maybe I Do, Carl overdubs the guitar solo, and on What About You, you have a Fender Rhodes part. Right. That's it. The rest of it is the sound of the band live, pretty much. And we basically wanted a really good recording to take to venues to get better gigs. Right. Because at the time we were doing like Shrine and Silvana, which are fine. Like they'll they'll make it. Like, they'll basically pay for the band being there. So this was more of a stepping stone to get you to the next place. Yeah. And I think the other thing is we just didn't have enough songs for a full album. I mean, full album's like 40 to 45 minutes, and we might... Like, we have 45 minutes in our set, but that's also like three or four covers. Right. One, like, we'll probably do our arrangement of Higher and Higher at some point, but the other covers, like like Voodoo Woman or I'm Going Out we're not we're not going to record those and we don't really like Stop Moving neither of us really like that song very much I love much. that song a lot you love that song but you know it, that that song is the least like what we want to do okay you know that that's, that's really the reason why and, and it's it's you know that bridge in that song is garbage is garbage <laughs> like we couldn't think of lyrics at all 
and we were tired of writing the song. That's how okay. that bridge well, got then, written. I mean, I guess it's good you didn't record it. Yeah. I would say one thing that I do notice about the difference between the songs you guys cover and the songs you've written is that Caitlin has an incredible range with her voice. I mean, the high note, she's, when, when we play shows, especially when, when she's doing songs like Voodoo Woman and Higher and Higher, these yeah. covers, she is able to bring down the house. Yeah. Um, she is a force to be reckoned with. I've noticed in your guys' songwriting yet, you've yet to take advantage of Caitlin's range. Are That's, you are you looking in the future to maybe expand and change the style to fit Caitlin? Yeah, bit? and I think the other thing is that it is a lot different when you write the songs that you're singing. Right. Because... I think she probably has a much more specific idea with our songs than when she does a cover song. Because, uh, I mean, like, because she already has this idea in her head when she's writing the lyrics, she probably doesn't have to... I don't know, you'd have to ask her, but I think that we're moving into the direction of something that's a lot closer to that, something that can unleash her, that she can do a lot more riffing on. I don't think we'll get to something that can do, like, higher and higher, because that's a specific kind of song. Um, but we're definitely moving in that like funkier, like deeper bluesy direction. So it'll be really interesting when we get to the point where we do want to record an album and we have enough songs. We'll probably it'll be really interesting to see what songs we have then. Yeah. So we have the you know you've recorded this four song EP. What's the title of the EP? As of right now, it's either. It's either going to be self-titled Linden Street, yeah. like it's going to oh, just Linden Street connection. Yeah, no. or it's just going to be called self-titled. Uh, I've always liked. I've always liked. You always like self-titled. I've always liked that idea. Connection. Don't call it self-titled. I also. You're going to write the well, word like, self-titled. Yeah. Well, I always, I always like. I don't know. It's it's just me because we probably, like like an album, we would take seriously. An album. An album. That good. But, you know, for, for the EP, I mean, the, the songs on, on there are not, like, like, One More Day's kind of, like, One More Day's, like, the deep song, but the rest of them are kind of, like, you know, What About You is basically, like, an entire song written as, like, fuck this guy. <laughs> a little bit. That is an and interesting like, fall, description of fall that song. Fall Down Soon, well, that was how... I was when I started writing. I was listening to Sarah Bareilles, and she writes a ton of those songs. So that's where the lyrics came from. But like, you know, "Fall Down Soon" is kind Sarah of a light song. Influence. I would not expect that. Yeah, I was. I, Kaleidoscope is one of my favorite records. Oh, it's a great record. Kaleidoscope that is. A, that is. Yeah. Kaleidoscope art is amazing. Yeah. But um, you know, "Fall Down Soon" is kind of a light song. Maybe "I Do" is kind of a light song. Right. You know, so we keep a little levity. I think if we get into the next step of it an album will be a lot more grounded we also I, I don't do are there any plans to record an album or are you still putting the material together we gotta see how this goes yeah yeah we gotta see if anybody wants to listen to it sure. you know I think we might and when we do it'll be probably won't be cause we're it'll be about a year now since we recorded it and it'll be released probably in November so you know that that next process will probably be a year to 18 months after that after we see what the EP does like if it's getting good enough traction we'll probably definitely go and record another album but it's it's a much larger commitment time and financially right so, as you know yeah of course yeah of course so let's step away a second from John Sheckler the drummer of Linden Street the songwriter of Linden Street let's talk about John Sheckler the producer 
So, yes. So, I like these. Yes. If I had a different hat, I would wear it. Right. So, you know, you... I was very surprised um, when you arranged a band around the songs that I put together on acoustic guitar because I had no idea what that was going to look like. Um, to, give, to give a little background, you and I then made demos for songs that were going to be recorded on my solo album only for a couple we did like one for Crazy Child Mexico and Three Dimensions we did those a lot ones of I remember yeah. we did a lot of demos together and then we went into the studio and you you very much took the creative control when it came to putting instrumentation on the record and I was very surprised I had not known this side of you and so you clearly have a talent for Hearing a full picture, going back to, you know, even when you were talking in the beginning of this whole thing about uh, you liking screenplays and being able to see the whole picture. Um, what do you see in the future in terms of producing? Is your what is your end goal? Would you like to be a drummer on tour with with a successful band? Would you like to be in the studio with artists cultivating their sound and creating creating uh, the instrumentation for their albums? Where do you see yourself in the future? I. You know, it's funny that you say that because Aaron asked me the same question yesterday. And, like, my honest answer is I will really just do anything. Like, I I enjoy all these aspects. I Like, I enjoy songwriting. I enjoy producing. I enjoy pop, jazz, like, any drumming. And I enjoy, I like, even though it comes with a lot of weird stresses, I enjoy, I enjoy being the leader of a band that I can bring... You know, like if I go on tour and I can bring Steve and Aaron somewhere, I enjoy the idea like this is me and this is my band. Um, and I enjoy that, like getting to have a full idea of my own stuff. I would honestly love to see it all be nice and balanced. Like, like I don't think I have crazy ambitions for anything. Like if I can do, if I can produce one or two records a year like produce produce it play on a couple more and then do my stuff and have linden street be doing all right and maybe go on the road for a couple weeks here and there i'd be pretty happy I so mean, it's more about making a living in music than I, th- I think a lot of people who go into musician have these these uh dreams of grandeur of being, oh yeah of being you know, oh, and I definitely ha- I want it to be a game changer right for, but like I don't know at a certain point that all is just dumb like <laughs> why do I want to change because all that's going to do if you don't change the world with your music and you're really trying like there's a lot of pressure to do that in the jazz world to like I'm going to be a part of the next thing right well if you're not you just sound bad like, there's a lot of people that I've heard, people who are close friends of mine, that I've heard their jazz stuff, and they're really trying to push boundaries, and they just fall flat on their right. face because the music is boring, and it's alienating because you can't listen to it. Yeah. So, I, I don't want to change the world with any of this stuff. I just want to, like, if I can work with good people and do good music, I'll be pretty happy. Like I'm, if I if I can eke out a living, like my financial number, if I can make forty thousand dollars a year doing this, yeah, that's like nothing. <laughs> that's absolutely nothing. But you'd be so happy. I would be super happy. Yeah. So I mean, any 
you know, part of it would be nice to like become like the producer for some kind of sound. Mm-hmm. But I also don't care that much. Like, if like Q's record is not gonna sound anywhere remotely close to your record because I don't care about my own stamp on some of this stuff. Right. I'm just happy to be doing it and working. So I yeah, I'm not trying to, to change the world or, or be the guy. Just as long as I can work and be able to do all these things, I'll be pretty satisfied. Uh, so John, we we covered Linden Street, we covered you as a producer. Talk to me now about your solo jazz record. So at the same time, as you were doing my record and Linden Streets, you decided to also go in for another full day in the studio with your musicians to record some trio tracks. Tell me about them. So this, um, I really needed to do this record a little bit because um, it had been five years well, like five and a half years since I had been in the studio with with uh, a trio. And I don't know, like I was finally writing things that I was really happy with. Stuff that I felt was a really good representation. Like almost everything on the record, the exception of one tune, was written after I came to New York. Um... So I really needed to have that on somewhere, mm-hmm. and like it was—it's the total polar opposite experience that I had on my last one. Like I don't—I don't have any financial backing or anything like that, other than what's out of my own pocket. But I'm working with guys that I've been working with that I really love working with. It's Steve Denny and Aaron Caceres yeah. playing. I actually went to school with Steve. He was like an old man back then. It's really funny to see him now. Um, and like that, that has been a working band. And he really, like we, at one point we started sounding just really good. And I was coming into a little bit of money. So like I knew exactly what I wanted to do. So, you know, Linden Street, I think we did four songs in like two and a half hours. Which is, you know, that's pretty fast. But then again, we had everybody in the band playing right. at the same time. Like, it was, I think it was like a six hour recording day in general. Right. And then the trio was another six hours booked, but we only recorded for like an hour and 45 minutes. Yeah, so like, on, on both your records, you did them each in a day. Or I think, uh, Lyndon, I think you did in two days, right? Yeah, we did. We came back yeah, for, came for back. the guitar and the vocals. Right. So, you know, how was that? I, you know, obviously, just because you have a lot less. Just uh, every time they play it, yeah. they just don't get it. So, obviously, because you had a lot less time to work with, you know, I almost imagine how they talk about, like, on SNL, like when they like do a sketch when they're when they're just getting the show ready on Saturday, it's like there's gonna be a lot of things that are just kind of they're gonna be working as best they can, but they know there's going to be some wiggle room within that framework. How did you manage that in terms of the album? What what were you looking for in terms of the sound? Well, I um the one thing I knew is that the trio would be fine. Because Steve and Aaron have played every single one of those tunes like at least once or twice 
before the record date. Steve had been playing those charts for years. Aaron had been playing a lot of those tunes for years. So I just knew that they only needed a couple takes. Right. It, like, it, it, sh- I don't think it should ever be did a you point. Guys, did you do any overdubbing on that record, or was it, it was all know. just full takes? And we did very little editing. Yeah. Very little. Um, actually, we didn't even mix that much because, you know, jazz, you just make sure the mics are in the right place and they'll right. pick up all the sound. But, I mean, the Linden Street record is also kind of the same thing. Like, we didn't have anything specific in mind. And the stuff that we did, we we did. Like, I had a really specific guitar part at the end of One More Day, and I just told Carl to play it, and right. he played it. So, but the great advantage for me doing my record is that I knew that those guys could play it because they had played it already. I think what happens a lot in jazz recor- recordings, and in recordings in general, is that they don't work with working with the guys they're usually working with. And sometimes that turns out great, and sometimes it's just like money down a toilet because the record's not going to do anything. Why are you paying Lee Sklar $15,000 to play on your record? Like, it doesn't make sense. But, um, by the way, if you do another record and you get $15,000, we're totally hiring Lee Sklar. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it's totally going to happen. Wait. Anyways, so like I... have to pay you with it. <laughs> <laughs> like, I could never understand why it takes why it took jazz artists like eight hours to record an album. It just it never made sense to me because unless you're in a big band... I suppose perfectionism. I mean, look at someone like Prince who, you know, threw all of his shit away yeah, and but basically like, locked it Pr- up. Prince is also, like, pop music is so different because you're really, like, doing layers and layers and layers. Jazz doesn't Jazz, you're, you're creating or you're, you're capturing a performance. Right. And even with jazz, the mistakes are part of it. I mean, the... You know, a little bit, yeah. yeah. Not the big ones. No, I, yeah, I mean, if someone's like really bad, there's a lot of wiggle room. Yeah, I mean, and as long as you get the the head in and the head out fine. That was dirty. Thanks. <laughs> it was just for you. Thank you. But as long as you get the tune solid and there's some pretty good playing on it, it, it really doesn't matter how long you play in the studio. I mean... Is there any relation between uh, working on Linden Street Connections album and working on this, or is it apples and oranges in terms of the recording process, the writing process? What what parts are you using different, two different parts of your brain for each different project? It, it is different because, well, it's really different as a drummer because I'm serving a different purpose in Linden Street. Mm-hmm. Like, and, but you're and, also the songwriter. I'm also the songwriter, but, but the really big thing is also that I have to be simpler. Right. Um, and even, like, your record was really hard for me to play on because I had really had to simplify what I was doing. Well, that, that's pop music. <laughs> well, yeah, but it's also, like, because I knew there was going to be a lot of other stuff, we recorded the drums first. So do you, do you, so, right, do you feel as though, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I think the point you were getting to do you feel like on your jazz record you can kind of let loose with, with the drums you can really make it as much about the drums as you want where you feel like in other places you might have to hold back not necessarily I think it's more of a role mm-hmm. like I always viewed well not always I started to view like pop records um, especially like singer songwriter drumming as more about orchestral stuff like it's more of a part than it is 
a vehicle to express something. Like when I'm with Linden Street, I can get to like higher highs a little bit because that band's a lot looser in terms of how it is constructed. Yeah. Like the songs are really loose. Like you can, as long as you play the chords and kind of the voicings, yeah. we're totally fine with whatever you play. Like you, you wrote the, you made a totally different intro to One More Day and Maybe I Do, and we could have cared less as long as it sounded good. <laughs> yeah. So the same thing goes for the other parts. As long as it sounds good and it's pretty much in keeping with what we thought, it's great. With jazz, it, it is a vehicle of expression. And what's great about playing with Steve and Aaron's, I played them with them so long that they can get on board with what I'm doing and I can get on board with it, what they're doing and we can get some really nice moments. Like that's that's one thing about that trio is that we just we're starting to get that like kind of easy communication. We're like we're ending things in the same way and we're building the same way mm-hmm. and they come to like kind of the same conclusion uh, without really thinking about it either direction. So that, that's what's nice is like I don't have to think too much about playing in the trio whereas I actually have to be really thoughtful with Linden Street and especially with your music because there is if if I played the way I played with Linden Street on your record yeah. the other parts wouldn't have worked you know so you're very thoughtful um, when it comes to all these projects um, I guess you know it's I've never I haven't met many people who have done so many different things and, and different things. I mean, actually, I mean, each one of these projects is so different from the other. And I imagine the, the projects that you're going to be working on in the future with, you know, Aaron's is going to be completely different from all of this. Yeah. Um, so, you know, what do you see for your future? Where, you know, what, obviously you have a lot of things you're juggling right now. Uh, where would what would you say is your biggest priority in terms of your music life? Um, you know, that's that's kind of to be seen because right now the the really big priority is I'm, I'm, I started to do some work on this last month is getting these things out. Right. Like, I've, I've put together like checklists and email lists of places to email how to get a review like all that stuff i've done a lot of work on that and just like it's a mountain like i can now understand why people pay three thousand dollars for someone else to do this right because even just copywriting like i haven't even figured that shit out like i gotta figure out how ascap it's not too bad ascap is publishing is registering it to make money licensing oh then i guess i don't know copywriting yeah copywriting is like a whole different i don't even know what i have to submit it's so I mean, right now, yeah, my, my whole long-term view is that if I can get, I, I'm not sure if I told you this before, but my, my financial goal for both of these things is to just break even. Right. Which, honestly, for my record, isn't going to take much. I didn't spend that much on mine. So if that thing can break even, I'll be pretty happy. That's like 150 copies sold. Yeah. It's nothing. I had four Dutch people playing out, like buy an album that from a person they've never heard of that got no reviews and no press so hopefully if i get some reviews and some press and it's not just dutch people that buy the record i can do 150 copies i don't know why you're 
excluding the Dutch people from enjoying it. I think you get it just 150 people Dutch, Dutch people to buy your record. Even better. Then I'll, I will go to the Netherlands and enjoy myself yeah. every week. I'm playing sold-out houses in the Netherlands. That's fine. Very possible. Yeah, it is possible. But yeah, I mean, the that's the that's the pile right now. Mm-hmm. And, like, it is, it is getting to a point where, like, I know other people, like, not just you, but I know Carl wants... Carl's band Drop Diamond is trying to release a record and I don't really want anybody to do this alone yeah. because it's it is a tremendous amount of work to it do is. it so you know long term I would like to see these projects like short term is just to get these things to make their money back mm-hmm. as far as everything like right. you know I pay out of pocket for the trio gigs uh, we pay the guys we hire for Linden Street if we can just get to a point where we're not paying them for every gig, where right. the the venue is paying us enough money to pay them, we're going to be pretty happy. And we're actually on our way. I know the trio is definitely on its way to doing that. And Linden Street should be on its way to doing that pretty soon. So, yeah, I mean, I have very modest goals for everything. So if any of them are achieved, <laughs> I have to figure out what I'm going to do next. Like... <laughs> Like, Linden Street's initial goal was just to play the bitter end. Well, we played the bitter end. Right. Now we got to figure out what the next goal yeah. is. Like, do we Keep shoot... setting those landmarks. Yeah, do we shoot high and go for a place like... We're going to play Bowery Ballroom yeah. at some point. Or do we shoot for something that maybe is closer to home? Like, just doing an out-of-town gig with some people coming in? Like, yeah. I mean, it's all stuff like that, so... Do you think the bitter end should take Bill Cosby off the wall? No. No? No. All right, next question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we've talked about your jazz record, we talked about Lyndon, we touched on my record a little bit, but I'm I'm curious in terms of putting on that different producing hat and what that was like for you, because obviously, you know, it, it was now a situation where it wasn't fully your project and, and obviously you had yeah. me who was in the end making all the final calls yeah. what was it like working under the framework of having someone else make those decisions and what was what was your what was the process like from your side of things it, it was very different I, I'm gonna say like it's a good thing we became really good friends through this because <laughs> if you were an asshole it would have been so much harder uh, some would argue that <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, because, like, it, it was great to that we were on the same page, basically. Yes. Like, And the other thing is that we both have very similar influences, like, on the pop side of things. Yeah. So you describing what you wanted out of a track wasn't that hard for me to figure out what you meant. Like, like Mexico is a really good example where we started doing Mexico – and you were afraid it was getting a little too bluegrassy because yeah. we were doing all this stuff with like acoustic guitars right, and stuff like that crazy. and so the very first thing I thought well if he doesn't want a bluegrass bluegrass doesn't really have electric guitars that much so we'll just shove as many electric guitars on the track as we can was there anything that surprised you about being a producer that you maybe didn't expect going on well I really hope that that this holds true but I was expecting it <laughs> Alright. I guess this is happening. I was seriously expecting it to be a lot more of a of a fight 
to get stuff. I mean, like, we butted heads, but not to the extent that I thought we were, no. we were going mean, to. We butted heads when you had awful ideas about what harmonies to put on certain And we butted heads when you wanted to destroy beautiful vocal tracks. So... <laughs> fair, fair. Yeah. I mean, like, but... It, it was never a point of... That is awful. That was almost never the case. Like, where something would be tried and it would be bad, but the idea would somehow get in there. And it was just yeah. a matter of seeing which which perspective that idea worked at. Like, like Don't Let Me Down, I had you crying in the vocal booth yeah. because I had Mike take your voice down an octave because I thought it would be cool if we had something there. And you were and dying laughing. Like yeah. Don't let me down. <laughs> and it, it was it was sense. bad. But you ended up putting on doubled vocals an octave higher. Right. And that added a lot more to the track well, of that spe- line. Speaking of that, I mean, what was it like having to coach people in the studio? Because I'm not sure if you had to do that before. You you were you very much coached me. One of the memories I have is when we had to. I had to lay down a piano part for uh, Never Gonna Go, and I wasn't playing it with enough emotional gusto, I suppose is the way to describe it. And so you literally came in into the studio and had me play it to you. Um, what was it like? How, how would you strategize? I mean, obviously you have to get into the psychology of the person you're working with. How was it coaching someone and getting a performance out of them? Honestly, I think for the instrument side of it, that was the only thing... Like I, what I was actually trying to get you to do on the instrument side was the opposite a lot of the time. We're like, no, you don't have to be emotional about this guitar part because we have all these other things going on. What about, I mean, in vocals though, you you were very much involved in having me try different things. Yeah, I mean, that was really just like the, you know, the tough parts of vocally, I always think are ballads anyways. So it was really just like talking, it, it, there was a lot of trial and error on my part like what like how how do I approach getting more emotion out of a performance and I also and I have a tendency to do this with my students too I have a tendency to really give a lot of information right. just a ton of information so how do I do these things and not overwhelm you I'm sure you probably felt that sometimes I was just like Information. That was my own neuroticism. I can't blame you. Well, and like the other thing was like, how do I? (coughs) I think I I always knew the hard part would be like, how do I get you to stop? You know, that's and I think that's always the hard part. And eventually, like I don't think we had nearly as many issues as like the past when you had been in the studio. I know that like your vocal time per track just kept on going down. Yeah. Um, Which was, yeah, that was that yeah. Totally I mean, the the emotion part wasn't wasn't that big in the end. I think because you knew you knew the the lyrics, and we had kind of built these tracks. I think I had told you before. I'm not sure how you took it, but like I tried to build the track so that you couldn't fail emotionally. I appreciate like, that. <laughs> yeah, where like you build the track so strong that you could have anybody singing on it. And the track would still work. And the message would still get through because the focus of the lyrics and the way it works with the track would work. So I don't think I was ever worried too much about emotion. It was just that one tune where you were just playing really hard that I had to do like some producer mind tricks. Did 
any of the time in the studio with me inform how you approached Lyndon's album, maybe how you approach your solo album? No. 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 Is it's that that really is apples and oranges because my well Caitlin's a pro I mean she didn't need any coaching well and also Linda Street it's a different thing I think because we've had this discussion a couple times about would we do it differently would we right. do it like the way we did Linda Street because there's no way like doing that everybody in one room for yeah. a couple hours definitely saved us a lot of money oh, well, studio time yeah. but. Your your record needed a lot more specifics. Yeah. It's one of the hard parts about putting a band together with you is like you have so much stuff that kind of needs to I be think in those tracks. Is like ten guitar parts. <laughs> it's a lot of guitar parts. There's ten like, guitars. You know, we almost put a piano part in the bridge. Like, and there's like singing all over the place. So your stuff needs a lot more specifics. Like Broadway can't be just played by some dudes. Right. A little bit like. Broadway needs like very specific keys part and it's a very specific guitar part for right. that track to work. You know, so but with Lyndon you went for a more uh, organic sound. I mean it's show all up the and instrumentation. Play. Yeah, yeah it's all it is. To show up yeah. and play. To show up and play. Yeah. Just because yeah, like I said, we were just tired of going to rehearsals. So we decided to make a band that no one would have to rehearse with. Like we we did one rehearsal for our first gig, and I don't think we've done any others since. You know, going back to Lindsay just for a second, one thing I forgot to ask you is, when it did come time to songwrite, of course you had put together jazz tunes, but lyrically, this was the first time you were you were first time you were putting lyrics to songs. Um, where did you and Caitlin pull from in terms of the content of these songs? Um, I mean, Caitlin kind of would complete a story. Like, What About You is not about anything specific in our lives. Yeah. Um, so, like, I would I would have these lines that would just sound nice. Like, nice little lyrical ideas, like, uh, uh, some people told me you had all the cards up your sleeve. And I had a different line than she said you were just waiting for the right player. You know, I had this idea of, like, one more minute, one more mile, all that stuff. It yeah. was not, um, it was not that thought out lyrically on that tune like one of the reasons why I love One More Day so much is that that's the only one that's like about us that comes from our everyday lives yeah so so would it be more of like observing other people and kind of writing stories is, is it closer to writing a script than it was to reflecting on your own life at least for the other songs yeah like our songs are not that reflective mm-hmm. um yeah like I said One More Day is the only tune that is like of anything to do with us, yeah. really. I mean, Kaylin's got like some stories, but as far as the other tunes, it's really like, here's a set of lyrics. Let's try to make something out of this right. type of stuff. So it's more about kind of like seeing what fit phonetically, and then maybe yeah, ideas around that. Yeah, like we just wrote a song called Clearly. Clearly. Yeah, clearly. It sounds obnoxious. Clearly. Yeah. Well, but like the first line is clearly I'm losing my mind. And I like I had all these nice little like turns of phrases. It was more like it's more like these lyrics sound nice. Can we please try to figure out a way to make these make sense? So you know, we won't start with like an outline or a story or anything like that. It'll just be like I have a couple nice lines. I'm sure the next tune that we write together will be the same thing. And like people song was. People song was a song she had a really clear idea of what she wanted. Yeah. That's but based it, on her childhood. Well, that's just based on everybody that we know. Like, yeah. 
you know, there's like some lines about her childhood, and there's some lines about other people that we know. But like, I think the, again, I think that um, that was a good pause. But I think that the best stuff that we've started to write has a little more of just like our personality and not necessarily our lives in it. Cause like we're, we're a little flippant yeah. in like a positive way, I guess, if that makes sense. Like not like flippant, like everybody can go fuck themselves. We're like flippant is that everybody can go fuck themselves. Kind so of it's thing. a celebration. It's a what? It's a celebration of everybody. Yeah, a little bit. Like it's, it's the happy, like, I don't care. You can do whatever you want. And I think that comes out in the tunes more than our lives. John, one last question because I do have to get back to Melissa to have some dinner. Yes, yeah, very true. Um, Lindsey Buckingham or Stevie Nicks? Neither. Neither. Fleetwood? Why are you asking questions? Nick Fleetwood? A Fleetwood and Mac? Yeah. Why would you ask a question about Fleetwood and Mac? Who is your favorite member of Fleetwood and Mac? They're all terrible people. All right, thank you. They're John, all bad. John, thank you for joining us on the Joint Distance Show. People, you should know podcast today. I'm going to totally review this. I'm going to call you tomorrow. Uh, garbage.